you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're going to be discussing some of the subjects that were sent in by listeners. Question answers with our listeners. So you want to just go into the questions? Yeah, let's see what we got. All right, so Sung wrote an, sent us an email. He asked, what would we... I know Sung. I had lunch with him today at Panda Express. Really? Yeah. It wasn't our choice. I okay. of our choices. Okay, that's yeah. acceptable. Then. Last time we had lunch together, we had it at the Korean restaurant down on Ritchie Highway. Oh, okay. Very good. Panda Express is exactly what you'd expect from fast food, Chinese food. Anyway, Sung's a good guy. Yeah. So he asks, what would you list as the five Baptists that epitomize the Baptist tradition? So he wants me to summarize 400 years of Baptist history into five names. Yeah, it seems like a reasonable... Good thing I knew this question was coming, so I did a little <laughs> bit of thinking on it. Okay, so obviously there's tons of choices here, and five is a short list. So I went with some of the classic things that Baptists do. Okay. What are Baptists known for, distinct from other places, from other denominations? The first one is religious liberty, freedom of conscience, and separation of church and state. So that you don't can't be compelled to believe or, or worship in a certain way. So that would mean... The first one, one we talked about before, Thomas Helwes. So Thomas Helwes wrote um, in 1611 or 1612, 1612, I think, a sent to King James, a pamphlet on religious freedom, how the king cannot compel people to believe a certain way, which got him thrown into the jail, Newgate Prison, I think, where he died. So that's one of the first Baptists died for religious freedom. So I think that's he, he, his theology, sort of consistent theology of leaving the congregational separatist churches and becoming a Baptist, writing on religious freedom, dying for religious freedom, uh, that sums up a good aspect of Baptist history. Okay, number two, um, Benjamin Keach, a little more obscure, born 1640, died 1704. So early Baptist, one of the earliest Baptists at this time, particularly as Calvinist. Uh, Hell was a general Baptist, Arminian, Keech's particular Baptist. So I picked him two things. He introduced hymn singing into worship. Okay. Which sounds pretty strange, right? Like, yeah. Can you imagine a church that didn't sing hymns? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they didn't think hymns were biblical. It's only, I believe it was only Psalms, like Bible. They only use Bible. And he, a huge controversy. That hymns were appropriate. So when you think of a Baptist church, can you imagine going to a Baptist church that didn't sing hymns? No. Yeah, I've never heard uh, before this time there were, there were some. But now when you think Baptist, you think hymn singing or some kind of singing, not quoting psalms. That seems more like a Presbyterian or. Mm-hmm. So Keach was the one who brought that really in, and then he also wrote a catechism, which uh, Baptist Catechism sixteen forty or sixteen seventy seven, also called the Keach Catechism. Which I think is important because people think catechisms are Catholic, but Keach wrote and introduced one based on sort of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism. That was meant to, it was like 111 questions, I think, to train people in the faith. So Baptists should have an orderly system of training, and Keach was one of the first to write a distinctively Baptist one. Which, as with most things back then, you take what the Presbyterians did and you change the stuff on baptism. <laughs> so that's what his basically was. Uh, okay, so that so that summarized sort of the hymn singing and the careful catechism teaching of, of people. Then George Lyle, which okay. we have a whole podcast on him, mm-hmm. but he emphasized the missions 
emphasis, uh, sort of pushing forward into new places, risking your life, lifetime of service, planning churches, uh, doing missions. Uh, so he was African-American, uh, first Baptist church planner in Jamaica. So Baptists have always been about missions. George, uh, William Carey, Adam Judson, George Lyle. So he's, he's summarized that pretty well. Uh, then, of course, Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, I, I was, I was waiting Spurgeon, for you to The Prince Spurgeon. of Preachers. Now, uh, he sums up that sort of careful biblical preaching, expository preaching, which is not always Baptist, but it's the best of Baptists, is taking the Bible and preaching from it. And then evangelism. He was one of the greatest evangelists of his time, and he did it through Bible preaching. And he was also a little bit of a rebel, and I like that. Um, funny story. There's a preacher named Pentecost who came and preached for Spurgeon, and his sermon was on why it was wrong to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so he preached why it was wrong to smoke from Spurgeon's pulpit. Well, Spurgeon was notorious or famous right. for smoking cigars. So after he gets up, after he preaches, sits down, everyone in the audience, Spurgeon's church was sort of looking at him. So he gets up and he's like, well, we want to thank our brother for preaching. And uh, we appreciate that he has his convictions. And, but we all realize we don't share the same convictions. So I'm going to go home and smoke a cigar for the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs> also, I have a picture. Um, many people say he quit smoking before he died. Mainly independent Baptists like John R. Rice who need him to quit smoking. But I have a picture by his grandson of a half-smoked cigar from January 1892, which is significant because he died in January of 1892. So it could be the last cigar he ever smoked gotcha. in the same month that he died. So he never gave it up. He probably maybe cut back a little bit, but he was smoking to the end. Um, okay, so that's Spurgeon. Then the last one is a guy named Charles Octavius Booth. Probably not a well-known name, but his he wrote a book in 1890. Uh, he was African-American preacher in Alabama. He wrote a book in 1890 called Plain Theology for Plain People. And it was targeted at uh, black sharecroppers who weren't allowed to get good education and were sort of uh, marginalized. And so he wanted to write a, a book of theology that was plain, simple, and biblical. So they just republished it so you can get a copy of it. It's great. Half of it's just scripture quotes. But it's laid out, it's clear, it's not as simple as you think. It's actually, it's, it's pretty uh, careful, detailed. So Booth was interesting. He was a pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which later became uh, Martin Luther King's church. So what Booth epitomizes is plain, sound theology for everybody. So when you go to a Baptist church, you should expect a preacher who's going to talk to regular people, not sort of a high church feeling where... You know, really smart people. It's just regular people. Plain preaching. So he wrote this for people. He also uh, advocated for marginalized people. So he was born, obviously, if he wrote this in 1890, he was born in the, to the, in the slave era. And his one of his great passions was racial uplift, lifting, lifting newly free black people out of the oppression of slavery. And so one of the things he wanted to do was teach black people how to read and write and understand the Bible. Because at that time, they had gotten white theology. And the slave owner's primary goal for giving theology to black people was to make them good slaves. So a lot of Paul, you know, obey your masters and submit to them over you. And so when the black people went to white church with their slave masters, that's what they got. So Booth's idea was very Baptist. What's a Baptist do? Biblical authority said, read the Bible, 
What's the Bible say? That's what God says. And the Bible's the authority. And so he wanted to counteract this bad theology that had been coming from other people. And he epitomized... So he's in the tradition of Martin Luther King. So that was Martin Luther King's goal, was to uh, sort of lift black people out of the oppression that they'd suffered. So Booth is 50 years before that. But it's this idea of the Bible teaches that you should love your neighbor as yourself and that Christ came to lift us up out of sin. And so Booth, his goal was to counteract the effects of sin from slavery and segregation through practical means like teaching reading, teaching good theology, and teaching people how to be Christ-like, which means love one another. So it's building this ethic of love, which I think should be a Baptist principle. And so Martin Luther King drew from that. He becomes the pastor of the same church uh, 40 years later. And so Martin Luther King, I almost put him down, but Booth is a better, uh, more more well-rounded. But it's this idea of what is the ethic of a Baptist church or of a Christian church. The ethic is not sound theology. That's what you believe. Ethics what you do. So the ethic of a Bible church, Christian church, is love. And so the black church tradition, like Booth, like MLK, epitomize that love one another. So, yeah, those are my five. Do you have one? You, have one, you want to add one? No, I think you, I okay. think you covered all the ones <laughs> I was going to bring up. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to I mean, there's plenty more that you could add to this. Okay, what do we got next? All right, so next we got a question from Patrick. He was reacting oh, to... Oh, Patrick. <laughs> not that Patrick. Yeah. Um, he was reacting to our Calvinism podcast. We did an entire episode on Calvinism and how it's misunderstood. So he asked about Arminianism and how it's misunderstood. So I'm not an expert in Arminianism. So I'm going to focus on the one. Yeah, Arminianism's a broad. Yeah, it's a broad category. Yeah, it's often used of heresy um, by Calvinists, but like, like actual heresies that just sort of tagged as Arminian, even though they wouldn't. Many Arminians would also disagree with the same thing. So there's a branch of Arminianism called Reformed Arminianism, which tries to be more biblical than just the broad Arminianism. So Reformed, most people think Calvinism, but Reformed really just refers to the theology that was coming out of the Reformation. So Luther, 1517, resists the Catholic Church, and then after that, the Reformation happens. And so most Reformed guys were Calvinists, but Luther wasn't, so he's Reformed. So there's a guy named uh, Jacob Arminius who lived after Calvin and he disagreed with Calvinism. And so he came up with what we now call Arminianism. And so there's a group of guys, especially free will Baptist in America who are recovering sort of this reformed Arminianism, which would be different than Wesleyanism. So John Wesley, Charles Wesley, they were also Arminian, but they had their own kind of, of Arminianism, which is more popular. Then you got the Arminianism of like Finney, which was just, basically heresy in a lot of ways. So Reformed Arminianism, I think most of our listeners are going to be more connected with this than Wesleyanism. So what's the difference? They reject the total sanctification of Wesley, where you could uh, sort of on this earth achieve, what do they call it? Is it called total sanctification? Yeah, absolute sanctification, where you stop sinning, which Wesley taught was possible. Reformed Arminian is like, no, you're going to need to work on this the rest of your life. And when you get to heaven, you'll be totally sanctified. But here, you won't. So I think most Baptists that we're talking to are going to agree with, you're never going to be sinless on this earth. Yeah, progress. Sanctification is progressive. Yeah. 
progressive sanctification. Yeah, so, th- so that's reformed. I mean, uh, then they affirm original sin, total depravity, which means that man is not reaching out to God. That God has to send the Holy Spirit to man to draw him, to reach out to him, which I think is biblical. So, uh, so to interrupt real quick, so I saw a clip today where somebody said he was a zero-point Calvinist. So I'm assuming. Um, okay, I mean, so that would I he mean, sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> I haven't met him, but he sounds like a fun guy. I bet he doesn't talk about Calvinism very much in, in regular right. conversations. <laughs> so being Armenian doesn't mean zero point. No, no, it's not the opposite of, of Calvinism. Right? Yeah, that's that's as if there's only two sides of something: Calvinism or Arminianism. It's like theology is much more diverse than this. Than that, so. Reformed Arminianism believes that you are corrupt and that the Holy Spirit must work on you, come to you to work on your heart before you respond. Now, it still believes you have free will. Yeah. And the opposite of that is Pelagianism, right? Yeah. So, Pelagianism, which is what Finney basically was, was you change your own heart. In fact, Finney has a sermon called Your Duty to Change Your Own Heart. Oof. And that's heresy. Um, Romans 3 is pretty clear that there's none righteous. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that do right. And so, Reformed Arminianism believes that, which they would have in common with Calvinism. Uh, then they believe in penal substitutionary atonement, which Wesley kind of moved away from, and Finney certainly did. So, penal substitutionary atonement means uh, there was a penalty for sin, that means punishment for sin, and that Christ substituted himself for us on the cross and took the penalty. So there's actual punishment. It wasn't just an example. It wasn't just a victory over sin. It was actual punishment. And that it was atoned for, that it was covered, that it was done. The penalty was absorbed in Christ and done away with for those who believe. So Reformed Dominions believe in that, whereas maybe Wesleyans, certainly Finney, would move away from that. Uh, then they don't. they do believe you can lose your salvation apostasy. The difference being, uh, and that's where most of our believers are probably going to shy away from that, Arminius himself was ambivalent. He wasn't really sure about that aspect. So to be an Arminian doesn't necessarily mean it, but most do. So Wesley and Wesleyan Arminianism believe you could continually lose your salvation, like all the time. Just like over and over again. Over and over again. Uh, Reformed Arminianism believes it's like a one-time thing. So like in Hebrews where it says, you just turn away and you, you fall away. So you, if you reject Christ, that's it. There's no second chance. There's no. It's not something you have to worry about. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to mitigate, the, trying to pull back a little bit and say, yeah, you possibly could lose your salvation, but you would have to just totally reject everything, which no one really agrees So basically, that. if you were worried about losing your salvation, you wouldn't. You wouldn't lose it. It would be you coming out and confidently saying, Jesus Christ never exists. I certainly don't trust him for salvation. And so it, it sort of practically gives a security, eternal security, but not quite. Uh, so if you want to know more about these guys, look up uh, the Free Will Baptist, the president of Welch College, which is their college, uh, Matthew Penson, wrote a book on it. He's a good source. You can go to the Hellwiz Society, which is a website. Uh, one of the guys that contributes, Jesse Owens, I was at school with him at Southern. We, we connected over our non-Calvinism because <laughs> Southern is very Calvinistic. <laughs> right. Everyone in our class was Calvinist, except for one guy. He was Church of Christ, and none of us liked him because he believed, you know, as he said, regeneration in baptism. 
So Jesse and I were the only non-Calvinists there, and so we kind of connected. Uh, so he writes for Hellway Society, which has a bunch of articles and kind of gives this reformed Arminian perspective, which is definitely worth reading. Uh, yeah, so that's one aspect. Uh, so we also had, we did an episode on the Confession from 1611. So Matthew wrote in, asked us to talk about the New Hampshire Confession of Faith from 1833 and how if it does, t- how it ties into the 1611. Funny thing about the 1833 Confession, New Hampshire Confession, J. Frank Norris, in his paper, The Fundamentalist, published, uh, printed it, two full pages, printing the uh, New Hampshire Confession. So, independent Baptists do believe in confessions and subscribing to them. So, the 1833 is probably the most popular. It's what the current Southern Baptist Statement of Faith is based on. It's obviously been expanded. Yeah, so it's probably the most popular. So, the History of Confessions, we talked about 1611. That's a Arminian General Baptist, which is not directly connected to the 1833. So, basically, uh, General Baptist, 1611 Confession, and they did the Orthodox Creed about 100 years later, and they had their own tradition. Separately, the particular Baptist, their first big one was 16, uh, uh, 1644 London Confession. And then they followed it up later with the 1689 Second London Confession. So the 1689 Second London Confession, based on the Westminster Confession, is one of the most popular, influential confessions of faith. Very influential. So when you come to America, Philadelphia Association, Baptist Association, adopted the 1689, but added hymn singing. Oh, Benjamin Keach adding hymns. So in the... 1742 Philadelphia Confession of Faith. It's basically the 1689 Second London, plus you can sing hymns. And that was a big one, but it's very Calvinistic. So at the same time, 1780, a man named Benjamin Randall, who's an Arminian Baptist, starts the Free Will Baptist denomination. So now you got this com- competition. And so a bunch of Baptists were like, we're not really hardcore Calvinists, like 1689, but we're not Free Will Baptists either. So is there like a middle ground? And so in 1833, they made the New Hampshire Confession, which is a moderate Calvinism. It's sort of a really toned down Calvinism. It's not free will because free will had their own, but it's a really toned down Calvinistic version. So it was made to sort of try to draw in as many people as possible. Big tent confession? Big tent confessionalism. All right. So then we have David. He wrote in a bunch of questions. So I'm going to go through as many as I have time to get to. And I'm picking these at random, so Matthew doesn't know. I don't know. So I figured I'd start with an easy one, since be based on your uh, dissertations, based on. So David wants to know what every independent Baptist should know about John R. Rice. Hmm. Okay. John R. Rice was the editor of the Sword of the Lord, which was one of the largest independent Christian weeklies or, or monthlies from starting in 1934, still going today. But he died in 1980. What everyone should know, he was a fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. He was really big on inerrancy. He was not King James only. In fact, he called called King James only people. This is controversial. He called them foolish and unbiblical and causing division among the churches. And he said uh, it was a new thing and it should be avoided. And he wrote that in about 1979. So that was late. He was a moderate on a lot of things. He was a moderate dispensationalist. 
he was he was really mostly focused on evangelism for good or for good or bad. So sometimes it worked out well, other times it didn't. He was very culturally bound. Uh, he was a racist. Uh, he loved people. So he's a contradiction in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, he was very moderate. He was very generous and gracious. He was a hundred percent sure that he was right all the time. In fact, I've only found one thing in his entire life that he changed on. So he's a bundle of contradictions. The best parts of him are he believed in the core foundational theology of the Bible, the fundamentals. He tried to unify Presbyterians, Baptists, everyone. He tried to unify them around those core doctrines. He was very kind and gracious to everyone. And he was not, well, as he said, he was a fundamentalist but not a nut. <laughs> he actually has a chapter in one of his book, Be a Fundamentalist but Not a Nut. And that's something that we should look back on favorably. The next question, he's got a couple questions based on the same topic. So we'll just bring up the topic instead of the specific questions. King King James Version (laughs) Onlyism, since you already talked about it with what Rice said about it. This is what's called being thrown under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, I did bring up John Rice. Uh, What was the question? So he asked about the history of King James Onlyism and King James Version Onlyism in independent Baptist life. So the history of King James Onlyism. Okay, that's a tough one because I don't know anyone that's done a lot of research on that. It was not a popular position in the 60s. And really in the 70s either. So John R. Rice, who was one of the most influential independent Baptists, did not subscribe to it. You know, John R. Rice and the people, Lee Robertson was not a King James only guy. He actually allowed the new King James translators to work on the campus of Tennessee Temple and supported it. Curtis Hudson, who, who followed Rice at the Sword of the Lord in 1980 or 81, was not King James only. You can trace it probably back to – now, there's a Texas Receptus only. Right. That goes back further, maybe to the 1800s. But King James only, it really, I would lay all the blame at Peter Ruckman's feet. Peter Ruckman was a vicious, mean fundamentalist who was uh, ethically, ethically bankrupt. And while he did say some true things, he was also racist, explicitly racist, um, divisive. Uh, is that enough to get th- my impression think, of him? Uh, he cursed. He would curse other Christians. He would. He would. He was pretty bad. Um, and I have his book, so I'm not speaking secondhand. He was very King James only. Mm-hmm. He argued for basically double inspiration that the King James corrected the Greek. He started in the '60s as a PhD from Bob Jones, pastor in Pensacola, Florida. Not to be confused with Pensacola Christian College, which he denounced as apostate. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in the 60s, he started writing about that, gained popularity. Uh, there's churches still, Ruckmanite churches are still around. I don't know if any of our listeners are Ruckmanite, but if you're a Ruckmanite and you're listening to this, you should consider the ethical and loving behavior of Christ and compare it to Ruckman. Hopefully they listened long enough to get to that point after what you said about Ruckman. Yeah, so just (laughs) how do you judge someone like Ruckman? Well, did he – is he kind? Is he gracious? Is he long-suffering? Is he peaceful? You know, the fruit of the spirit. I think it's pretty clear he wasn't. I mean, if he's – what Paul said, if he has everything but love, he's nothing. Exactly, he's nothing. So whether he was right on the King James or not, he had no love, and you could see that in the way he wrote about people. And so he's got nothing. 
but he made King James only as unpopular. He was very, he was brilliant. He was a genius. And so he was able to formulate very strong arguments. And so that was the 60s and 70s. It really didn't, I don't think it really got roots until Rice died. Because Rice sort of maybe held it in check a little bit. Uh, then after he died, guys like Jack Hiles sort of became leaders and they became King James only. Jack Hiles was not King James only prior to the 80s. It wasn't until, 80, I think I found 83 or 84 he preaches a sermon. It's funny, the sermon denounces anyone who's not King James only, which would include John R. Rice, who was already dead at this time. But it, based on that sermon, John R. Rice, who Hiles worked with for 25 years, would have not been a faithful Christian. <laughs> so anyway, and so that's what really gained, gained popularity. The strength of the King James argument, why it's so such a big deal for so many people, is because fundamentalists, what's the, the, the best thing about fundamentalism is their conviction that the scriptures are inerrant and true and the authority, which Baptists believe. That's a good thing. When you equate the King James Version with the Bible, then all of that transfers to the King James. So to any faithful Christian, if they heard someone changing the Bible, they would say, you can't do that. You can't preach here. So if the King James Bible is the Bible, all those arguments transfer. And so that's what happened. That that conflation was made in the starting in the, really the sixties, seventies, gained strength in the eighties. Uh, but it is a new thing. It's it's not a traditional fundamentalist thing. It's not even a traditional independent Baptist thing. It's a new thing that happened within my lifetime, really. So next question we have is how can we appreciate Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic? <laughs> you can't. He's a Catholic. Burn all his books. That was a quick answer. Yeah. Uh, you know what his nickname was. No. The dumb ox. <laughs> That's an unfortunate nickname. He was large. He was a big guy. He had a very big head. And he moved slowly. And he talked slowly. And so his friends, or not his friends, his classmates and, and acquaintances would mock him by calling him the dumb ox. Uh, jokes on them, because here we are. He was born in 1200s. And we're still talking about him. So he wasn't that dumb. So how can we appreciate him? Well, you have to be honest about him. A lot of what he did was change, was fixed by the Reformation. So medieval Catholic theology needed some help, namely Luther coming along in justification by faith, sola scriptura. So you, you need to be aware that Aquinas was a Catholic medieval theologian. But how can we appreciate him? He was part of what was called scholasticism. And their basic, their basic question that all these theologians were thinking was, what's the relationship between reason and faith? which is the priority, which is more important, which one comes first. So Aquinas, who was the maybe the most, definitely the most influential thinker of that time, but maybe the most, you know, the most brilliant. He said grace perfects nature. But then he really just said it's not really a question. It's not really a problem. Grace and nature don't conflict. So I would say, how do we appreciate him? He was a very, very careful thinker. This is a problem I have with people dismissing theologians with bad theology like Aquinas because he did have some bad theology. He thought through these things far more than his critics did. So you're like, oh, you find out he doesn't have, doesn't believe in justification by faith so you dismiss him? It's like, you gotta, he's worked harder on this. You need to appreciate his thinking. So on, on some things he's Catholic in the worst ways and other things he's thought through it very carefully 
And even if you just go through, the way he wrote is very interesting. He sort of has this question and answer format. Just going through his logic, even if you don't agree with him, will make you a better theologian. He survived this long for a reason. And his his way of thinking was slow, like I guess like an ox. <laughs> slow, careful, powerful. It's a lot of good stuff. It's a lot of bad stuff. But just working through his way of thinking will make you more careful than your own thinking. Independent Baptists and theological education. Baptists have always had a complicated relationship with education. So even you go back to the beginning of Baptist faith and life, they were mostly common people uh, resisting the authority structure. So they're persecuted, like we talked about in the Revolutionary War. They're persecuted for a long time. So they always struggled with that. When Brown University, which is the first Baptist seminary, came into being in the 1700s, there was a lot of resistance from Baptists who thought that theological education would ruin a preacher by replacing the Holy Spirit with books. That spirit never left America. It's obviously not as prominent anymore, but there are pockets of Baptists, individual Baptist thinkers who think that going to seminary will hinder the spirit. It will make you sort of book smart, but not full of passion. In fact, Many people call a seminary as a cemetery. <laughs> you know, you go to the cemetery all the dead. You know, if you can't actually preach or teach, you go to a cemetery. But that can happen, of course. Uh, and especially if you are not prepared for it by a good church. So the priority in the Christian life, and Baptists believe this because of the way we set up our churches, you are shaped as a Christian by your church. A faithful group of believers covenant together to read the Bible, pray, observe the ordinances, practice church discipline. That's how you grow as a Christian. So the foundation of Christian life is the church. So if you start with that, then seminary is going to help you. Even seminaries that aren't that great, you'll have a strong church foundation where you're discipled into the, into the, the essentials of the faith so that when you go to a seminary, you're ready. Even if you hear bad things, you've already been discipled. Your spiritual life is, is good. Then you learn sort of how to think more carefully about uh, broader topics. You learn more about Baptist history, about church history, about how other people have been more faithful. It's like an intense training time. You could learn it at your own church, reading your own books. Spurgeon did it. He just read thousands of books. So you could just read thousands of books. Uh, and be and a be genius. A, and be a, and be a genius. genius. That's <laughs> the other qualification. But most of us need someone to help us work through those things. And that's what seminary does. It's mentors who give you good resources that you wouldn't find on your own and help you think and work through those and, and sort of make you a more careful thinker and teach you things like Greek, Hebrew, church history, apologetics, systematic theology, biblical theology that you theoretically could learn at your church, but most don't. So if you want to be a, and not everybody needs this sort of intense education, but the, but some people need it. Pastors need to have more education than their people because that's their job. So independent Baptists should take very seriously the task of preaching and teaching the Bible. And if you take something serious seriously, you pursue training in it. And you're not... I don't think any of our listeners, though some could, you're probably not as smart as, smart as Spurgeon, so you probably need someone to help you. So go get help. Uh, go find a Paul. Go find a Timothy. Go find an Apollos. And sit 
and learn from them and then take it back to your church and teach them what the Bible says, which uh, you should have learned more about what the Bible says and how Christians live out faithfully. So every pastor should have theological education. It's not, I don't think it's required that it be formal. The Bible doesn't require it. So we shouldn't require it. So you should not require a pastor to have formal education, but you should be prepared and equipped to be a pastor. And that most likely is going to happen in a formal setting. And then within that group of pastors, there should be a few who go on to get an even higher education to help those pastors. Uh, so some should be getting master's degrees, MDivs, and some should be getting PhDs so they can host podcasts like this one. <laughs> and basically, it's serving the church. How do you serve the church? Lay people serve one way. Pastors serve one way. Uh, PhDs serve another way. Seminaries, they all serve the church, which is God's original institution in the New Testament. So the next one, I think, is a general question, maybe how you can assess this question if you're a pastor of a church. Is my church racist? <laughs> we have some uh, listeners who like to cause problems. Is. <laughs> is my church racist? Obviously a complicated question and a very tough question, mm -hmm. which you could never know unless you're in the church itself. Right. You can never, obviously, from afar. Well, that's not true. You could from afar. But for it's, most of the churches I know of, it's going to be, you're going to need to be there and, and have a relationship. I would say some things to look for. Is everyone in your church the same race? Is everyone in your church either the same race or the same ethnicity? That's a warning flag. It's not necessarily wrong. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a area right. where there there's 99.9% right. population. If you're, in, if you're in, you know, Vermont, I don't know the demographics of Vermont, but from what I've seen, it looks like all white people. <laughs> uh, you're probably going to have an all-white church. Okay, so it doesn't – it's just a simple – but if you're in Atlanta or Baltimore and you're an all-white congregation, that's a – you should look and ask why. Uh, secondly – you want to answer that one because that was your answer. Oh, well, so when I heard the question, I thought uh, one way you can look at is, are you discipling any minorities for positions of leadership? Yeah. So a lot of churches historically have had minorities in their churches all the way back to slave days. The, the masters would bring their slaves. So the presence of minorities does not mean you're not racist. So the question is, are you raising up leaders? Uh, or are you sort of keeping a certain group of people? Could be ethnic groups, could be social groups, could be class, economic class groups. You know, the Bible specifically talks about uh, poor people. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, in terms of racism, are certain races elevated to leadership and others not? That's a big question. Uh, I would say, is, is the leadership handing out resources from from across the spectrum? Are they quoting – if they're only quoting white people and only handing out resources by white people, that's a red flag. You should ask why. None of these things mean you're racist, but you should ask more questions. And really what we should – we should not be shooting for not racist. We should be being anti-racist. Racism is a specific heresy that books like Ephesians, Revelation, even Exodus condemns. So we should be fighting against the heresy that divides the church based on human categories. So we should be anti-racist, just like we're anti-classist. Anti-classist, yeah, which James talks about specifically. Okay, so are we anti-racist? Are we fighting against human divisions where Christ doesn't divide? And what what ways are we going about being anti-racist? What ways are we going about uniting the body of Christ around the gospel, knowing that the world and Satan is fighting us? 
that Satan is always working to introduce divisions through economics, through politics, through neighborhood boundaries, through police efforts. So we should be working against all of those things. And also, if you know the history of America, there's a lot of clues strewn through American history of how marginalization happens. So your church should be fighting against that. So I would say if you're not fighting racism, what are you doing? You're, you're probably uh, facili- or you're complicit. So those are some red flags to look for. Right, so I think that's all the questions we can cover today. Thanks, guys, for sending your questions. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcastinhistoryandhope.com. We might use it in a future episode. You can also message us on Twitter at History and Hope. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.